My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor at Woodland Hills Church, and it's good to see all of you. I want to say it's also good to be talking to all the people we can't see. There are thousands of people who podcast, and we should all say hi to the podcasters again. On three, ready? One, two, three. Hi, podcasters, or podcasts, or whatever you're going to call them. Uh, I, we've just got a lot of feedback on how much folks like that appreciate uh, when we acknowledge them all over the globe. It's, a, it's really an amazing thing. Uh, I just found out this morning a group that in Kansas City, uh, they have like a house church and they download the messages and they have their own worship service and there's just cool stuff going on. And so God bless the podcasters. If you're visiting us for the first time, whether in person or by podcast, I want to give a special welcome to you. I thought last week that we're going to be doing the Q&A today. And probably some of you came with your questions. Hold on to them for two more weeks. Uh, what we, it just makes more sense. We we're going to like do the Q&A and then have two sermons on spiritual warfare. Uh, it makes more sense to do the two sermons on spiritual warfare, which will generate more questions, and then having the Q&A. So on July 28th and 29th, here's the thing. We're doing a three-week series now on spiritual warfare. Uh, starting today, because it's in the book of Luke, and we're just studying the book of Luke. And so as we're going through this, write out questions that you have. You can use the sermon notes in the bulletin. Just write out your questions and turn them in at the information table in the gathering area. Or you can get on the website and uh, send your question in that way. And then we'll have a person who's going to take all these questions and kind of put them into different categories. And then we'll spend the sermon on July 28th and 29th just addressing the particular questions that you have. Sound cool? All right, so uh, make a point of being there and come with your uh, questions or, or send the questions in. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke, chapter 8. And today we're reading from verse 22 through 26. As we kick off this mini-series on spiritual warfare, I want to at the start say that I want to emphasize that we're talking about spiritual warfare we're not talking about human warfare or human violence of any sort. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, verse 12, that our struggle as kingdom people is not against flesh and blood, or princi- uh, 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 is not against flesh and, flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers and rulers and authorities and dominions in dark places. Which means that if it's got flesh and blood, he or she is not your enemy. If it's got flesh and blood, he or she is someone that you, as a kingdom person, are commanded to love and sacrifice for, no ifs, ands, or buts. And in fact, the way we do spiritual warfare, one of the main ways we do spiritual warfare against the powers, these diabolical powers, is by living lives of outrageous, ridiculous love, which is the opposite of violence. So when I use warfare language, don't get looped into this kind of earthy, fleshy, carnal, violent thing. Rather, I want us to always remember we're talking about spiritual warfare, warfare against the principalities and powers that incite people towards violence and all forms of oppression. And my goal here this morning is this. A lot of times when people think of spiritual warfare, they immediately think that it's about casting demons out of people. That is one aspect of spiritual warfare, and in fact, we do some of that around here. It's it's biblical. But that's not the only or even the primary focus of spiritual warfare. I want us this morning to see spiritual warfare as a holistic concept. Warfare isn't something that just goes on once in a while. It permeates our lives. In fact, I want us this morning, I'm going to try to help us to see that warfare permeates the entire creation. And that seeing the world as caught in warfare, even at the level of creation, 
reframes the world in ways that has a, a real practical impact in our life and how we live our lives. So that's my goal here for this morning. So the title of this message is A War-Torn Creation. A War-Torn Creation, and I'm losing, using this passage in Luke as our springboard. It says this from the TNIV version. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. He was actually running away from a crowd because he was exhausted from being, so, from being ministering all day. And so they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, Jesus fell asleep because he was exhausted from ministering all day. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke Jesus saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. I just want us to notice here that the boat is being swamped. There's gale force winds. The boat is taking in water and Jesus is still asleep. Disciples are freaking out. Jesus is, is, is sleeping in peace. Uh, maybe that's because he was so tired, but it also says something about his calmness in these things. So Jesus got up, wiped the sleep out of his eyes, rebuked. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this guy? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Jesus rebuked the storm. Pray with me for a moment. Father, human words can never do what needs to be done. Uh, only your spirit can do that. And so, Lord, we surrender this message over to your spirit and ask you, Holy Spirit, to use it to help us see the world accurately and to adjust how we live in the world so that we reflect the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. Use this message to get us further invested in the kingdom and the warfare that is the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 There are messages that I give, such as last week, that are geared more towards the heart, either to motivate us in a certain direction or to bring about healing in our life or things of that sort. And then there are messages where it's geared more towards the head than it is the heart. Not that there won't be a heart change, but it's, it gears towards the head because it's, it's giving information to help us reframe how we think about things. These are messages that are sometimes rather dense theologically, messages that require us to think deeply about things. This message is definitely in that category. So I want you to get your thinking caps on and follow closely what uh, is going to be said here. It's going to challenge some of the thinking that I'm sure some of you came here with. And you may not end up agreeing with me. I just ask that you listen and be open to it and to consider uh, the, the message as it's going forward. The, the, really, the, the central problem that I'm getting at here this morning, or one way of getting at the message I want to get at here this morning, is this. It's, it's this question. If God is all good, all good, all love, and if God created the world, why doesn't the world reflect God's goodness, God's love? Why is the world rather such a violent world? Now, we can answer that question on a human level because God gave us free will. If we didn't have free will, we couldn't love. Since we have free will, we can either love or not love. And, and so we, of our own free will, inflict a lot of violence uh, on each other and on nature and things of that sort. That one's not that difficult, I don't think. But my question is, why does creation 
the earth, the animal kingdom, why doesn't it unambiguously reflect the loving, good character of God? The world that we live in is a violent world, even at the level of creation. It is a world where we sometimes experience killer earthquakes. Uh, every year, it seems, uh, there are earthquakes that kill thousands upon thousands of people. Several years ago, an earthquake in Pakistan killed over 100,000 people in seven minutes. Where is the goodness of God revealed in that? Then there are hurricanes and tsunamis that wipe out entire cities, as we saw just several years ago, on our own soil. But you see it throughout the world. Indonesia got hit with that tsunami that left thousands and thousands of people dead and, and ten times that many without homes. Uh, where's the goodness of God revealed in that? And then there are famines and droughts that, that strike the earth. It seems more and more with this whole global warming thing. Leaving people without adequate food, without adequate water, killing upward hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions. Where's the goodness of God revealed in that? And then, of course, we've got a whole spectrum of diseases and viruses that we have to constantly fight against. You've got the AIDS epidemic. You've got malaria. You've got Ebola, plagues, leprosy. Um, it, it, there was, there's been times in Earth's history where large segments of the population were wiped out by the plague. In the Middle Ages, uh, one-third, uh, 30 to 40 percent of Europe was killed in the span of three years because of a plague. Where's the goodness of God revealed in that? And they say that if this thing they call the bird flu ever finds a way, it's trying to find a way to be transmitted from human to human. When that happens, given how small the world is these days and how prevalent travel is, they're saying somewhere between 50 million to a half a billion people could die. Now, where is the goodness of God in this? How could an all-good, all-loving God create a world that, that has these kinds of diseases that torment and kill so many people? And then there are the parasites. One scientist said that parasites are actually humanity's worst enemies. A whole variety of things called flukes, the liver fluke, the kidney fluke, and other things, get in and they eat us from the inside out. These, these, these organisms, and they're, they're, they have a sort of demonic intelligence. They know just where to go and what to do and how to get in there to cause the most amount of misery and sometimes death. Tapeworms, pinworms, and other sorts of things. Here's one called the hookworm. I think Satan left his signature on this one. This thing is nasty. It gets, in third world countries, a high percentage of people have this. Walk, uh, they walk around with this inside of them. It gets in your intestinal tract, and it latches onto the wall of your intestines. And it's got just the right chemicals in its mouth to keep your blood from clotting. And it, 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 what it does there is it starves its host of all it, its nutrition. Uh, and so this person, no matter how much they can eat, and in third world countries, often they can't eat enough, but no matter what they eat, this thing is robbing them of their nutrition, so they're malnourished. And then it replicates, it, it, it reproduces, so people can get a number of these inside of them, and they can grow to be very, very long, filling up your entire intestinal tract, stealing nutrients, sometimes causing death, but even in cases where it doesn't cause death, it causes sickness and, and, and misery, just untold misery. Uh, our small group supports a, a, one of the missions or mysteries we support is, is a, a children's home in Haiti. And it was started by Greg and Marcia Erickson 14, 15 years ago. And they say that when they first went down there, one of the children that they looked at uh, was a, a young, a young a five, six-year-old girl. And they said that when they put their hand, her, their, their hand on her stomach, they could feel the worms moving around inside of her stomach. And sometimes you can actually see their, their stomach is just constantly moving because it's packed full of worms. 
Where is the goodness of God revealed in that? You've got people like Richard Dawkins. Some of you have heard of him, this uh, very outspoken atheist. Uh, and others like him today, atheists are getting more and more vocal. And what he loves to do in some of his books, he wrote, just wrote a, a new book called The God Illusion. And uh, he loves to recount the massive carnage that is history. I mean, the animal kingdom is, is full of carnage. Beyond the parasites, uh, you, you've got nature red in tooth and claw, animals feeding on other animals. Probably the worst of these is the hyena. I can't stand hyenas. I see very little of, of, of God's creativity in a hyena. I'm sorry. These things... I, I told you this before. I saw a nature video where a pack of hyenas attacked this antelope, and the antelope was stuck in mud. And I like antelopes. I don't like hyenas. Uh, the, the, these hyenas attacked this thing, and it took about 15 minutes to kill it because they, they, they killed it chunk by chunk. They just ate it alive. This poor thing's screaming in pain. It's got a nervous system. It feels pain. And it's just, they just, like, like walking piranhas, eat this thing alive. Where's the goodness of God in that? And people like Richard Dawkins recount the various horrors that are found in nature, nature red in tooth and claw, all the pain, all the suffering that is there. And, and they look at, at uh, uh, all the carnage and, and the waste of life throughout evolutionary history. And Richard Dawkins says, throws kind of out in the face of Christians saying, you Christians, you, you say you believe in intelligent design. Where's that magnificent intelligence in this? Where's the benevolent God in all of this? And what concerns me a little bit is that you find uh, that many Christians, maybe even most Christians, uh, seem to grant the premise of Dawkins' objection. Namely, the premise that God is the one doing all this. Uh, most Christians seem to believe that nature is right now just the way it was supposed to be. It was just created this way. This is the way it's supposed to work. Human beings are a little messed up, but creation is just working fine. And when you hold that view, then you have to say that God is behind the parasites and God's behind the violence and God's behind the earthquakes and God's behind the tsunamis. And there are a lot of Christians who say that. And then Richard Dawkins and other people like them say, well, look, at if that's the way your God is, if God's the kind of God is out there like this, doing these earthquakes and throwing parasites to mess people up and torment people in droughts and famines, well, then I'd rather have nothing to do with your God. Where is, God, where is the goodness of God reflected in the violence and the carnage that is nature, that is creation? I want to give an alternative perspective here this morning. It is the perspective that was the dominant view for the first three centuries of church history, up to the time of Augustine when he pretty much changed everything. But it was, it was the dominant way of seeing things. In this view, creation is permeated with spiritual warfare. It's not just human beings that are sort of the plane of spiritual warfare, but creation itself has been corrupted by principalities and powers, so it doesn't unambiguously reflect the goodness and the glory of God. It is the view that C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorite Christian authors, it's the view that he espoused. He says this in one place in his writings. He says, every, every square inch of this cosmos is at every moment claimed by Satan and counterclaim by God. Every square inch, at every moment, there is warfare going on. Warfare permeates the entire creation. I want us to notice in the passage that I read this morning that Jesus rebuked the storm. He rebuked the storm. The word rebuke there is the same word that's always used when Jesus rebuked demons. The word literally means to choke. He choked the storm. He didn't say, 
Oh, nature, this is operating just the way God intended nature to operate, and sometimes it just sort of bites to be human when you're in the way of a tsunami. Uh, you know, that's just the way it is. He didn't go there. What he did is he, he treated it as though there's something, whatever else you get out of this passage, it suggests, I submit to you, that there's something demonic at work in nature. Nature is permeated by corrupting influences. It doesn't mean, now listen to this, it, I'm not suggesting that there's a specific demonic power behind every storm, behind every hurricane, tsunami. I'm not suggest, suggesting there's a, a specific demonic power behind every parasite or every disease or every illness or anything of the sort. But I am suggesting that nature as we find it now is not identical to nature as God created it to be. It doesn't reflect perfectly the glory of God. It's permeated with a corrupting influence such that nothing operates quite the way it was supposed to operate. Now, to make this case, I'm going to present to you very quickly in the next 25 minutes five biblical facts. In fact, I've got to present these five biblical facts in the next 20 minutes because I've got to save time to apply them to our life. So five biblical facts. Got your mind, your, your, your thinking caps on? Okay, get ready. You want the truth? Can you handle the truth? All right, here it is. Fact number one. God's ideal creation is a non-violent creation. You read Genesis 1, and God says over and over again, however you interpret Genesis 1, and there's a lot of good room for discussion there, but over and over again, God says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And part of that goodness is the fact that there was no violence in creation. Genesis 1, 29 and 30, the Lord says to Adam this, listen to this, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. Look at that. And all the beasts of the earth, listen to this, and all the birds of the air, including vultures, and all the creatures that move on the ground, including lions, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. He doesn't say, I give the animals each other for food. I give them, like I give you, all the green plants for food, and it was so. It tells me, however else you, you, you interpret the, this, this, this chapter, it tells me that the original design of creation was a non-carnivorous creation. I know that's weird, but, but just let us sit there. In fact, the Bible tells us that when the kingdom is fully established on earth as it is in heaven, the creation will once again be completely free of violence, including violence in the animal kingdom. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 11. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lay down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together will lie together. And a little child will lead them. Humanity will be reinstated as the rightful rulers of the animal kingdom, which was our first responsibility in Genesis chapter 1. When the kingdom is restored, even a little child will be a ruler over the animal kingdom. And it will be free of violence. He goes on. The cow will feed with the bear. It doesn't say the bear will feed on the cow. <laughs> Their young will lie to, uh, down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Infants will play near the hole of the cobra. Young children will put their hands into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. That's referring to Mount Zion, which is just the Old Testament's uh, metaphor for the kingdom of God. 
where God rules. For the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. The animal kingdom will be filled with the knowledge of God. The earth will be reconciled to God, and therefore the earth will be reconciled to each other. Animals will be reconciled to uh, 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 animals, and people will be reconciled to animals, and peace will reign on the earth. There'll be no more violence. The world then will reflect unambiguously the beauty and the character and the peace of, the, of its creator. Now, I, I, at this conference I was at, this three-week conference I was at a couple weeks ago, Science and Theology Conference. We were talking a lot about the problem of evil and, and how to reconcile that with the Creator God and yada, yada, yada. Well, I put forth my the theory that you know, the nature's been corrupted. This isn't the nature that God originally designed. It's been corrupted by demonic forces. And among these philosophers and theologians and scientific brainiacs, it didn't go over all that well. <laughs> One of them uh, said, that's the nuttiest thing I've ever heard an academic propose. Uh, God bless him. Uh, Although, although, I'll tell you this, by the end of the conference, this kept on coming up, by the end of the conference, I, 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 conservatively, I estimate that at least half of them were somewhat sympathetic to the thesis, that it, it, it wasn't as fruity as they initially thought it was, and that it had some, not that they're going to commit to it, but it had some plausibility, so we didn't make ground on that. But they would chide me throughout these three weeks. I, I'd get like you know, little you know, rivings in the side, and they'd ask questions like this. What would a non-carnivorous lion look like for crying out loud? Its teeth and its intestinal tract is designed to eat little lambs. That's just the way it's created. You know, I, I, a non-carnivorous lion is impossible to even envision. What would it look like? And my response would always be, I don't know. I don't know. But look, the Bible tells me that there'll come a time when the lion will be non-carnivorous. And if it'll be that way in the future, I shouldn't have too much trouble believing that it was designed that way in the past. I don't know what it would have looked like, but I can't imagine what it would look like in the future, but I, I, I believe it is so. And so I, I, I don't have that much trouble believing that, that even though I can't imagine it, you know, the Bible says eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard, you know, the things that God has in store for those who love him and for this coming creation. I can't imagine what heaven and the kingdom of God is going to be like. But I do believe that the lion will lay down with the lamb and the cow is going to be friends with the bear and they're not going to be feeding off one another. Okay, so God's original uh, creation uh, was intended to be a nonviolent creation. Fact number two, nature is cursed. You read Genesis 3 and you read about a curse. And the curse came to th the level of nature. I don't have time to read this, but I'll highlight a few things that you find in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled and a curse came upon uh, the world. The hostility between snakes and people began at this time. Apparently in the original creation, there wasn't supposed to be hostility between snakes and people. Uh, the pain in childbirth came about at this time. The ground will be stubborn, the Lord says. Because of the fall, because of the rebellion, it's going to be much harder to work the ground. By the sweat of your brow, the Lord says, you're going to work the ground. Thorns and thistles are going to grow because of, of the fall, because of the curse. And all people will die because of the curse. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now here's the thing, folks. All of these things seem like they're simply natural effects of natural processes operating according to natural laws. We can't really envision a world that didn't have thorns and thistles and, and, and other sorts of things. And yet the Bible tells us, however you interpret this passage, however literal or figurative, it's at least saying... That nature as we now find it is a cursed nature. It's not operating the way it was supposed to operate. Paul says it like this in Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to frustration. 
The word there could be translated futility or decay. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Frustration, futility, decay. These are simply effects of the second law of thermodynamics, one of the most fundamental laws of nature. Uh, we can't really envision a creation that didn't have the second law of thermodynamics op operating, and yet here Paul says that that has come about because of the curse that is on creation. It wasn't supposed to be this way. So the creation that we're in right now, it reflects still the glory of God. You see the beauty of God and the grandeur of God and scenes in nature all, all over the place. But you also see a whole lot of stuff that doesn't reflect the glory of God. It reflects the curse. It reflects uh, a corruption, a futility, death, and decay. Now, there's two interesting questions that this raises, one of which I can answer. <laughs> the two questions are this. In Genesis 3, humans bring on the curse. But what do you do with all the suffering in the animal kingdom before human beings ever came around? That's the one that I'm not quite ready to answer. Um, and now, if you believe that the earth is 6,000 or 10,000 years old and that there was no, you know, the animals were, uh, that human, the animals were roughly created at the same time as, as human beings, you've got no problem with that one. But the majority of people today have trouble going that route because of scientific evidence that the earth is 4 billion, 4.6 billion years old and that there's been a whole lot of animal growth before human beings ever came around. And so the question that you'd have to answer if you go that route is, uh, how do you fit in all the suffering in the animal kingdom before humans ever came on the scene? Now, I have a solution, I thought, uh, in God at war and in Satan and the problem of evil. I, I have a way of, of working together some biblical evidence, and I, I think it's you know, plausible. In fact, I was totally convinced of it until I went to that science conference, and now I realize that there's, I got some problems, okay? So I'm working on it. I'll get back to you on this one. But there, it does seem that there was suffering. Uh, I, I think that this pollution that we're talking about here as a result of the angelic fall and then the human fall came about uh, partly as a result of this angelic fall. But the second question I'm a little more confident about. God, it's clear in Genesis 3 that God brought the curse on the earth. He, it says he cursed the ground. And yet Jesus rebuked the storm as though it was, had a demonic origin. And so the question is this. Who brings the curse? Is it God or is it Satan? And to answer this question, let's go to our third fact. The Bible teaches us that Satan holds the power of death. Keep your thinking caps on. Hebrews 2 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, referring to Christ, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. 1 John 3, 8 tells us that Jesus came into this world to do warfare with the devil, to defeat the devil, and to defeat his works. And one of the works he came to defeat was death. So in this passage, death is a result of, uh, of Satan's power. And yet, in Genesis, it's a result of the curse. Now, if you put these two things together, I think you come up with this scenario. The curse was simply a matter of God lifting the protection of creation and of human beings against the principalities and powers that wanted to afflict it. The curse is God removing his protection so that now Satan and demonic powers can do what they want to do. You find this all over the place in the New Testament. God's trying to teach Israel the importance of walking with him. So he says to Israel, among other things, this is part of their covenant. He says, uh, look it, here's the deal. You walk with me, I protect you from those nations that want to come in and conquer you. If you don't walk with me, 
I lift hands of protection and they can do whatever they want. When Israel wouldn't walk with God, then God would let the other nations have their way. Those were referred to as God judging Israel. But it wasn't that God was directly doing it. God was just letting other wicked nations do what they wanted to do with Israel. In fact, in, in Isaiah 10, chapter 10, God punishes Israel by lifting his hand of protection against Assyria. Assyria comes in and does nasty stuff with Israel. Then God judges Assyria for being the kind of nation that would do such a thing. Because see, this is God just letting the evil, using evil for good, and in this case the good was teaching Israel a lesson. Apply this to the garden, and what you get is this. God says to Adam and Eve, essentially, look it, here's the deal. You guard the garden, you obey me, you walk according to my ways, and you'll keep the principalities and powers at, at, at bay. But I'm setting up the rules this way, such that if you don't walk with me, if you disobey, and if you give in to their temptation, you will open up the floodgates and invite uh, the warfare in the heavenly realm will now come down to your territory, this territory that you were supposed to be responsible over. And that, in fact, was the curse. We were meant to be co-rulers with God on this earth. We were supposed to be his administrators of his loving providence. But when we rebelled, we just, like a vacuum sucking in air, we sucked in the warfare in the heavenly realms into this, this area that we were supposed to have dominion over, and we surrendered our dominion over to them. And that is what the Bible means by a curse. Which leads to my fourth uh, fact. It has to do with the demonic origin of disease. Now, now listen to this. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says that Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Apparently, everyone who he healed had been under the power of the devil because of their sickness or illness or infirmity. In fact, what you find in the Gospels, throughout the Gospels, is Jesus always regarded illness and sickness and disease as being either the direct or, some, or the indirect result of satanic oppression. It's not that there's a specific demon behind every particular affliction, although sometimes there was. But he treats all of it as being a result of this world being in this oppressed state. Never once does Jesus ever come upon somebody with an infirmity or affliction and say, well, this is the mysterious will of God, or this is just the natural law of cause and effect you know, operating in this world, and unfortunately, you know, it, it happens to go bad for you. He never goes there. What he does is he gets mad because the creation was never supposed to have this kind of stuff. And so he reveals what God is really like by taking the power of God and ministering to the people that are being afflicted. Now, we could... A scientist could look at all these afflictions and explain them according to natural laws of cause and effect. But that should just tell us that the natural laws of cause and effect that we find operating in the world right now are not all operating exactly the way God wanted them to operate. The whole creation has been polluted, corrupted. And now it can produce things like leukemia and cancer and other diseases. Not that there's a specific demon behind each one of those, but the nature that's corrupted produces those kinds of things. Which leads to my fifth and final fact I want you to think about. The Bible teaches us that the whole creation needs saving. Which means the whole creation is corrupted. You find this in a lot of passages. Here's, here's one of my favorites, Colossians chapter 1. It says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. And through him, listen to this, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
all things in heaven, all things on the earth. It's not just humans that are estranged from God. It's all things. It's not just humans that are in need of reconciliation. It's all things. It's not just humans that are messed up. It's all things. It's not just humans that are prone towards violence. It's all things. Every square inch of the cosmos has been permeated with this warfare, which is why nothing operates exactly the way it's supposed to operate. We're born in this world screwed up, folks. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I'll tell you the good news. We are born screwed up. Some are physically messed up. Some are mentally messed up. And we're all, to some degree, spiritually messed up because we're born in this polluted incubator. Living godly doesn't come natural for any of us. We've got propensities and inclinations and dispositions that, that just work against this. There's, there's, it, 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 you still see the glory of God revealed in people. The image of God is still present in people. But you also see in yourself and in others, uh, it's off a little bit. It's, it, it's corrupted a little bit. And, and what, God, what the Holy Spirit's doing in our life is readjusting it so that we are aligned with God and our wants and our desires get aligned with God. The same thing is true of all creation. You see the glory of God everywhere, the beauty of God. Yes, you do. And, and the magnificent splendor of God and the artwork of God, wonderful. But you also see a whole lot of stuff that just doesn't look like it was supposed to be there. And the reason is because it wasn't supposed to be there. God never intended a creation where today there are 300, 330 million people that don't have access to clean water. So they got to drink water filled with parasites and all sorts of other stuff which eats them from the inside out. That wasn't part of God's perfect design. He never intended a creation where there's 40,000 people today that will die of starvation or of diseases that are related to starvation. He never intended a creation where there's 20 million people that have died of AIDS and there's another 25 million that are infected right now. He never intended a creation where there's 100,000 people that get killed in, in a, in a, in a, a seven-second interval. He never intended a creation where there's tsunamis and hurricanes that wipe out entire cities or a creation where kids die in childbirth or where mothers die giving them birth. The whole creation groans, Paul says. It groans like a woman who's in labor pains. And that's a, that's a, that's a groan, folks. Uh, the, the creation's going, because it's in pain. But the good news, the good news is that it won't always be like this. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8, amen, Paul says in Romans 8 that that groaning isn't just groaning in pain. It is that, but it's also groaning in hope. It's groaning in hope because it's giving birth to something new. And the new thing it's giving birth to is called the kingdom of God. See, see, we are right now, and I'm starting to preach, we're, we're right now in this, probational ep- this probationary epic. Uh, because we're on probation and, and, and we're deciding uh, you know, how we're going to be birthed into eternity. And, and for the purpose of this probationary epic, we have free will and angels have free will. And, and that's why we can uh, inflict nasty stuff on each other and on the natural world. But this probationary epic that we're in now isn't an eternal epic. It's a finite epic. It's going to come to an end. And when it comes to an end, the promise of God is that there'll be birthed something new. There'll be a new heavens, praise God, and a new earth, praise God. The principalities and powers will be destroyed. And now, now the world will look the way God always intended the world to look. Now the world will be reconciled to God. And animals will be reconciled to each other. And humans will be reconciled to the animals. And will be reconciled to all of creation. And in that world, folks... Ain't going to be no tsunamis and no earthquakes and, and, and no killer mudslides and no parasites eating kids from the inside out and no heartworms. The lion shall lay down with the lamb and the bear and the cow shall get along. That's the creation that God has always been moving towards. In fact, when Jesus rebukes this storm, he's just giving us a foretaste of what is to come. 
It's a, what's called an eschatological sign, a sign of the future, showing a, a time's coming when all those kind of things are going to be rebuked and will be defeated. And the creation then will reflect the beauty and love of, of its creator. Now, what does this mean to us right here and right now? Got five minutes. Lord, help me. <laughs> Maybe I better start talking fast. What do you think? <laughs> okay, very quickly, three things here, folks. Uh, here's how it applies to us. Number one, don't go looking for the hand of God in natural disasters. You don't need to go there. You can find a couple passages in the Old Testament where God used natural disasters to teach Israel lessons. Yeah, that was the Old Testament, and that was about Israel and God. Uh, but no verse tells us that we're supposed to extrapolate out of that and apply it to explain all earthquakes and natural disasters. And all the evidence I just gave you is evidence against the idea that God's behind all natural disasters. You don't need to go there. And, Luke 13, Jesus referred to a natural disaster of this, this tower falling on a bunch of people. And a lot of people, a lot of religious folks, this is what religious folks always do. They say, I point my finger squarely at, and now they'll name who they're going to blame for this disaster happening. So people are saying, oh, they must have deserved it. God was punishing them. So you got the little flicker God up there, right? Here's a little tower, and God's going to flick that tower, boom, just so it kills those specific people. Wonderful. Jesus says, look at, do you think... Do you think for a moment that they were worse sinners than you? <laughs> Give me a break. That's a boy paraphrase. Give me a break. Uh, no, you know what? You're all sinners. And, and, and here's what you should worry about is, is your relationship with God. Are you walking with God? Because unless you repent, you're all going to perish. Uh, you don't, don't read the will of God or the hand of God out of the catastrophes in nature. Because when you start doing that, you start discerning the character of God in the natural disasters. And then you start attributing to God stuff that should be attributed to Satan. And there's a lot of folks like Richard Dawkins and Greg Boyd and a lot of other folks who say, you know what, if that's what God's like, I, I don't think I can believe in that kind of God. If you want to know what God it looks like, don't look at the hookworm. Don't look at the, the parasites. Don't look at the earthquakes. Look at Jesus Christ dying on Calvary for the very people who crucified him. That's what God looks like. That's the only place you're going to find out what God looks like. Secondly, live with a warfare mindset. There's a world of difference between living life like you're on vacation and living life like you're in the middle of a war. World of difference. When you're on vacation, you pamper yourself, you look out for number one, you want as little inconvenience as possible, you spend everything on yourself, you know, you're not trying to solve any problems, you just want a break. And we all need that once in a while. When you're in the middle of a battle, however, it's not time to pamper yourself. When you're in a battle, the important thing is to do what your commanding officer tells you to do. No one is right now going over to Baghdad to take a vacation, folks. <laughs> you go to Baghdad, it's, it's no vacation resort. No, see, you live life. People live life either like they're on vacation looking out for number one, pampering themselves, or they live, like, live life like they're in a war. And I submit to you that probably one in a thousand people live like they're in a war. In America, we call it the American dream. Number one, pamper yourself, get as many toys as possible, live life as luxurious as possible, you know, just get all the amenities, climb the totem pole of success, get as big a house you can, the biggest cars you can. That's all you got to worry about. And if, if the world was a wonderful place, I'd be all for that. Yay, let's do it. But the world's not a wonderful place. We're in the middle of a war, folks, a battle here. And maybe 999 people out of 1,000 don't know it, but we're supposed to know it. We're supposed to know it, and that's got to affect how we live. It's got to affect how we spend our money. It's got to affect how we spend our time. It's got to uh, affect how we use our talents. The thing that's important is not pampering ourselves. God blesses us, yes. But what's, what, the question we live in is not, do I want it and can I afford it? The question we live in is, does God want it? 
Uh, how will it further the warfare effort? Live with a warfare effort. A warfare mindset, not a vacation mindset. And the third thing, and I close with this, is, is this. Know that you are doing spiritual warfare whenever you fight the evil effects of nature. That is spiritual warfare. You're reclaiming the earth. You're reversing the curse. When we pray against sickness and disease and infirmities, we are we're doing spiritual warfare because we're pushing back. Uh, we're reversing the curse. We're pushing back the kingdom of darkness and the evil effects of nature. But not just when we pray. Anything you do to, to push back the effects of harmful effects of nature is spiritual warfare because there's a spiritual origin to it. When you fund uh, famine relief, you are doing spiritual warfare. When you support organizations that help people that are suffering from a drought, you're doing spiritual warfare. When you support or you yourself go to build wells and villages so they can have clean water, you're, you're doing spiritual warfare. When people go over on the mission field and they teach people agricultural skills, better farming skills and, and irrigation fill, uh, 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 skills, they're doing spiritual warfare. When scientists uh, do genetic engineering to develop crops that can survive in, in arid climates because there are people living there that uh, uh, don't have food, they're doing spiritual warfare. When they investigate new ways of, of, of bringing sanitation to water, they're doing spiritual warfare. When we develop vaccinations for diseases and find the origin of various diseases and, and, and supply medicine to people who are being afflicted, you're doing spiritual warfare. Anything you do to fight poverty and hunger is a form of spiritual warfare. Volunteering at a homeless shelter, working in a soup kitchen, that's a form of spiritual warfare. In fact, Having mercy on animals is a form of spiritual warfare. Anything you do to reflect God's ideal for creation is a form of spiritual warfare. In fact, everything you do positive for the earth is a form of spiritual warfare. And I know a lot of Christians write that off as some kind of tree-hugging liberal mania thing. But folks, that was our first command. Read Genesis 1. We are to have exercise loving dominion over the animal kingdom and over the earth. We are to be to the earth and to the animal kingdom what God is to us. We're as administrators of this. When we do that, it is spiritual warfare. We're reflecting evil effects of nature. Recycling is spiritual warfare. There, okay, I said it. It's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare when you live conservatively and, and you share resources. And... Um, uh, every big thing and every little thing you do is, is, is an act of spiritual warfare. And I don't need to settle some political dispute about the cause of global warming to do it. I do it because it's biblical to do it. As a kingdom person, I'm supposed to reverse the curse in every way that I can. Close your eyes as I ask the Holy Spirit to seal this message on our hearts. And I want you to know that as I lead us in this prayer, I, I, that, that uh, if God's working on you here, and you, and you don't want to leave just right now, then don't. Come forward. There'll be some people here who would love to pray with you. If you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, come forward. There, the people at the end of the service would love to spend time with you. But Holy Spirit, will you help us to be honest with ourselves right now, which is the most difficult thing. And the question I want us to ask is this. Are you living with a warfare mindset or a vacation mindset? Have you bought into the American dream? Or are you just doing the American thing? Holy Spirit, convict us. And if you find that there's something in you that is pricked a little bit right now, too much self-pampering, too much self-indulgence, not being a good steward of resources and time, 
will you just in your heart commit to change and ask the Lord to help you to change to get engaged in the war and ask the Holy Spirit to show you how to do it he'll do it and maybe something as simple as to stop polluting to start recycling that's warfare and maybe supporting an organization that builds wells for people who can't get water maybe the Lord will put that on your heart maybe something else but will you commit to living like a soldier who's always seeking to please his commanding officer and that is Jesus Christ Holy Spirit do your work here seal this on our heart as we go out of here to live your beautiful kingdom and to do warfare for your beautiful kingdom reclaiming the earth in Jesus name and all God's people said amen amen, amen. God bless you guys go out and build the kingdom the altar is open